This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 289th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. I end most of the episodes where I say, well, I really want to visit this place someday. On the location I'm doing on this episode, I have been there. And this is the Colosseum in Rome. This location was suggested by Anthony Ortiz. It is an amazing structure to behold. I look forward to sharing it with you. Obviously, a lot of bad stuff went down here, which makes a lot of bad juju, as we like to say. And when you have that kind of negative energy, usually there's some hauntings somewhere along the line, and we've got some hauntings going on here. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Nathan, Nancy, Courtney, Vashti, Leslie, Linda, Amy, Gina, Megan, and Giovanni. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Brianne Sanford. You've probably heard of the International Dateline. If you haven't, the International Dateline is an imaginary line that defines one day from the next and is located halfway around the world from the Prime Meridian, about 180 degrees east of Greenwich, London, and it zigzags from the North Pole to the South Pole. When you cross the International Dateline from west to east, you subtract a day, and if you cross the line from east to west, you add a day. A very curious thing happened at the International Dateline on December 31st in 1899. The SS Warumu, which was a passenger steamer, was making its way from Vancouver to Australia. The navigator had just figured out where the ship was located by using the stars, and he went to tell the captain, whom realized that the coordinates the navigator gave him meant that the ship was approaching both the International Dateline and the equator. The captain called all the navigators together and had them recheck everything. Once he was sure they were indeed at this position... He called for the engines to be slowed. At midnight, the SS Waramu lay on the equator at exactly the point where it crossed the international dateline, and the captain quickly announced to everybody what an unusual thing was happening. The forward part of the ship was sitting in the southern hemisphere, while the back was in the northern hemisphere. That meant that the boat was in two seasons, summer and winter. That wasn't all. The date in the rear of the ship was December 31st, 1899, while the date in the forward part of the ship was January 1st, 1900. And notice the years, 1899 and 1900. So the SS Waramu was in two different seasons, two different months, two different days, two different years, and two different centuries all at the same time. And that certainly was odd. 
Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of January, on the 18th in 1966, Robert Clifton Weaver was sworn in as the first black cabinet member in U.S. history. President Johnson had assumed the presidency in 1963 after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and he won election to the office in 1964. In 1965, he created the new agency, Housing and Urban Development, more commonly known as HUD. He appointed Weaver to be its secretary, making him the first black to be appointed to a U.S. cabinet-level position. Weaver attended Harvard and eventually obtained a doctorate in economics in 1934. He would first step into politics with President Roosevelt and serve as an informal advisor on his black cabinet. He served as a state cabinet member in New York and eventually joined President Kennedy's administration as administrator of the Housing and Home Finance Agency. Weaver was perfect for the HUD secretary because he had been dealing with substandard housing for people of color since 1930. He wrote an article entitled, Negroes Need Housing After the Stock Market Crash. Weaver went on to become president of Baruch College and then a professor at Hunter College in New York. He died at the age of 89 in Manhattan in 1997. Rome is a city that is believed to have had some kind of human existence within it for at least 10,000 years. This city would rise from a place of little stature to one of the greatest empires ever to exist. Amazing structures would be built under that empire. The Colosseum in Rome, Italy was an architectural marvel, but also a place of immense human and animal suffering. People would come from all over to witness amazing feats by human gladiators and to witness the tearing apart of other humans at the hands of wild animals. This was considered sport at that time and the remnants of this activity and the residue left behind has imprinted spiritually on the Colosseum. Tales of hauntings are rampant and this structure is said to be one of the most haunted locations in all of Italy. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the Colosseum. I visited Rome, Italy many years ago, and the Colosseum is one of the places that we stopped at. If you ever get the chance, you really must see it. It's an amazing structure. When you stand outside of it and you look at it, even though only about a third of it exists, you get a feel for how immense it was. It was really the center of the city. And when you go on a tour, you get to go inside. And although the floor of it's gone now, and you can see down into where all of the tunnels would have been and the different trap doors and such... There are, at least when I went, it could be different now. I don't know how much restoration they've done and such. But they had like a walkway where you could walk across and get a feel for what it would be like to be in that arena. For those of you who can do this right now and you're not driving, close your eyes for just a moment. Imagine that you've entered the arena. You can hear the cheers and the yells of the crowd thundering all around you. You can hear the roars and the cries of the animals that are below you. 
And whether you're a gladiator or someone who's about to be martyred, death is at your doorstep. Imagine what that must have felt like to walk into the Colosseum and to be the center of attention for just a moment. I can't imagine the fear. Before we get into talking about all of the elements of the Colosseum and the things that happened here, we probably should talk a little bit about Rome. Now, obviously, there's a whole podcast called The History of Rome, and I encourage you to listen to it. It's very good, so I'm not going to be able to cover the whole thing, but I'll give you a brief overview really quick. The founding of Rome is something of legend. The city of Rome is named for Romulus. Romulus had a twin named Remus. The legend around these boys is that their mother was Rhea Silvia who was the daughter of Numitor, king of Alba Longia. Numitor's younger brother, Amulius, had deposed him, and he wanted to make sure that no grandchildren from Rhea could ascend to the throne, so he forced her to become one of the Vestal Virgins. The war god Mars was taken with Rhea, though, and he got her pregnant with twins. This would be Remus and Romulus. When Amulius found out about this, he ordered the babies to be drowned in the Tiber River. A trough was made and placed on the river, but rather than sink, it floated away. It hit land where Rome would eventually be built. The legend then claims that the boys were suckled by a she-wolf and then fed by a woodpecker. Both of these animals were said to be sacred to Mars, so the thought is that he sent them to take care of his children. A herdsman eventually found them and raised them. The young men killed their great-uncle and restored their grandfather to the throne. The two founded Rome, and Romulus built a city wall. When Remus jumped over it, Romulus killed him. Romulus would go on to rule and then disappear mysteriously, leaving the Romans to claim that he had become a god. Now, of course, I preface this by saying this is a legend, and this is really what they talk about there in Rome. It's a very interesting legend, and let me just say that for me personally, I am one of those people who believes that the gods may not have just been something that the Romans were talking about. I believe that it's very possible that these gods, quote-unquote, actually existed. I believe that there were giants and men of renown at one time, and maybe they had some kind of powers that they were able to do different kinds of things that made them different than the humans around them. And this is why they were worshipped like gods. Whether they were fallen angels or aliens or some other life form, I don't know. But I believe it's very possible that these, whatever these are, these gods, that the Romans and also the Greeks would worship could actually have existed at one time. So as I said, the legend's interesting, and you've probably seen an image of this she-wolf that's suckling these babes that are underneath her. It's very famous, and it's uh, very well-known in Rome, and they have statues of it all over the place. The truth of what actually happened in the building of Rome, though, is probably pretty boring, actually. There were a bunch of little villages, and they probably came together into this great city that eventually fell under the rule of kings. And kings ruled it for about 250 years. In 509 BC, an oligarchical republic was established. There was a lot of struggle between the aristocracy and the small landowners, basically the rich versus the poor. Rome would go to war over and over and conquer many areas, but internal strife would continue. 
Between 60 and 53 BC, the first triumvirate was formed that eventually would see Julius Caesar as sole leader of Rome, with a Roman Senate that generally opposed him. Caesar was assassinated and his son Augustus would become the first emperor in Rome. Rome had grown from a small town to a powerful empire. Caligula, Claudius, and Nero would follow as emperors, and this golden era, as they like to call it, of Roman rule by emperors, would continue until 192 AD. Other emperors would follow, but Rome was in decline after that point. And by 410 AD, the bloated Roman Empire began its collapse. It really had a system that was broken and unsustainable because running Rome and all of the wars and all of the conquering that they were doing was far too expensive. They just couldn't pay for everything. What was left of ancient Rome is just ruins today. And among these ruins is one of the most magnificent man-made structures I've had the pleasure of visiting in person, and that is the Roman Colosseum. One of the things that's just amazing when you walk around Rome or any of those cities over there is just how ancient they are. Americans, we just don't have a lot of old stuff here. So you go there and you're walking down those roads and you're just seeing the ruins there. And it's like, you know, some of these structures were here for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I have a really cool flip book. I shared some of it with the executive producers. And what it has is like what the ruins look like today. And then it has a little flip page that you could put over it that shows what it had looked like in its heyday. So you get a feel for the original and what it is today. And it's just amazing how much of the immense structures that used to be there are completely gone today and just have basically a footprint. The Roman Colosseum was officially known as the Flavian Amphitheater. The name Colosseum is thought to have been derived from a gigantic bronze statue of Nero that was adjacent to the amphitheater and known as Colossus. And for those who don't know, the word amphitheater described the shape of the Colosseum. Most theaters were not in the round, they were semicircular. An amphitheater was the bringing together of two theaters to make this circular shape. The Colosseum was commissioned around AD 70 to 72, somewhere around there, by Emperor Vespasian of the Flavian dynasty as a gift to the Roman people. Emperor Vespasian came into his emperorship after Nero. Nero had committed suicide, and a civil war broke out after that because there was a lot of men who wanted to take power, and Vespasian was the eventual winner of all that. He was a very different man from Nero. A lot of people were very different from Nero. He was pure evil as far as I'm concerned. He was a man who was into decadence, and he was narcissistic, and it was just about him. Vespasian actually cared about the Roman people, and he wanted to change that decadence that Nero had put out there. One of the first things he decided to do was to build the Colosseum for the Roman people. And the place that he chose not only was at the center of the city, basically, but it also had been the former site of the Golden Palace. This was a personal palace that Nero had built for himself. He built himself a grand home, and it was a great reflection of how rich and powerful he was until a fire burned it down in 64 AD. Vespasian thought by building the Colosseum, he would be giving something back to the Roman people and, and showing them and proving to them that he was going to tone down the excesses of the Roman court, that he was going to restore Senate authority and do more for the welfare of the Roman people. It is absolutely mind-boggling to me that it only took 10 years 
to build the Colosseum. That is an amazing feat. Vespasian did not live to see it finished, so his son Titus was the one who ended up dedicating it in 80 AD. The grand opening stretched out over a hundred days. These days were filled with wild animal fights and combats between gladiators. The amphitheater itself could hold up to 50,000 people, and not only could they witness bloody fights to the death, they could also watch mock sea fights. This was accomplished by filling the arena with water, which was a technical marvel at the time. And it is believed that at this time, the area that was underneath the arena that we know today to have all these tunnels and everything, that they actually weren't there, which makes sense because I just can't imagine filling the arena with water and having all of this open area underneath. You would think that the water would end up going down there or something. So uh, this kind of is proof that there probably wasn't this underground area at the time that they were doing these mock sea fights. There was another technical wonder to the Colosseum. It had a retracting cover that could protect the people from the sun and the rain. I know we have some arenas in America that have retractable roofs. So this is something that goes all the way back to 80 AD. When you look up to the upper walls, you can still see the structures in place that were used to hold this awning. No one knows who the architect of the Colosseum was, or even if it was only one person or a group of men, I lean towards it probably being a group of people. The arena was set to measure 300 by 180 Roman feet. A Roman foot was around a half inch shorter than a full foot. If you look at a ruler that has centimeters on one side and inches on the other, you'll get kind of a feel. It was 29 centimeters, 29.8 centimeters, something like that, approximately. The ideal ratio of the period was considered to be 5-3. The measurements for the amphitheater are interesting in that the width of the arena equaled the height of the external facade. There's a harmonious rhythm to the structure that is seen in the three stories of superimposed arches with Tuscan, Ionic, and Corinthian columns, and then a fourth story had Corinthian pilaster strips and windows. Colosseum was built from marble veneered travertine and had four stories of seating. So those four stories that you see on the outside when you look on the inside, all of that had seating on it as well. It looked just like our modern day stadiums. Our modern use of multiple entrances that are numbered and separate assigned sections began back with the Colosseum. So it really was the first stadium, basically. And just to let people know, this was not the only amphitheater that was in the area. It was not the only one in Italy. There were other amphitheaters as well. The upper classes had the best seats with the commoners and women in the topmost sections or nosebleeds as we like to call them. I personally think the balcony seats are the best anyway. Anytime I go to the theater, I always get balcony seats because I like to be able to look down on the stage and to be able to see everything. And you can always bring binoculars if you want to get a closer view. The decor on the outside featured gilded bronze shields and arches filled with painted statues of emperors and gods. There were two grand entrances, one at each end of the minor axis, and these were generally used by the emperor and other members of the elite ruling class. Inside, the ceilings were painted stucco and the walls were polished marble slabs. Travertine was used on a lot of the areas as well, so a lot of what you see on the outside is what was used on the inside also. The closest seats were raised two meters above the ground, and there was a, a type of safety fencing that would protect the spectators. Imagine hockey games. You know, you don't want the hockey players going flying into the crowd. Same thing with animals and the gladiators. 
those people who were closest to the action would be in a little bit of danger. So there was a type of fencing that they could actually see through so they could see all the action, but also be safe. The people were all packed in like sardines. And what they witnessed was a level of cruelty we can only try to fathom. The sand on the arena floor was usually dyed red to hide the presence of blood. The floor was above a system of tunnels and trap doors that were an engineering marvel. Trap doors would flip open to allow animals to enter the arena. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you probably have a good visual for what this would have looked like. Down in these tunnels, it was completely dark. The air was dank. This is where the slaves and the gladiators and the animals were kept as they waited almost certain death. Gladiators were generally slaves or criminals. Initially, these tunnels were not a part of the Colosseum, as I said earlier, that opened under Titus. It's thought that his brother Domitian had this underworld area built. And I don't know why they didn't have it at first, if it was going to take too much time and they wanted to get it open, or if they just decided it would be more feasible to have everything coming up from underneath rather than coming in from the side, I'm not sure. But it made it easier for them to store everybody there and keep the cages and everything underneath. So how exactly did these animals get from the tunnels up into the trap doors that would get them into the arena? A series of winches and capstans were used, and it would take a team of slaves. They would work together to hoist up these cages from the basement to the main arena. And when you're there, you can still see bronze fittings that are in the basement's floor, and you can even kind of see where the rope burns are and such. So you can kind of get a feel for what that must have been like and, you know, how many men would it take to raise up a heavy cage that's got a tiger or a lion in it? Take a lot of doing. There were a variety of games that took place here with the most well-known being gladiator fights, of course. Now, when I say gladiator, that's a very generalized term because there were many types of gladiators. The term gladiator is taken from the word for the Roman sword, gladius, and the way, I guess the best way to explain this would be to say, imagine different forms of martial arts, and that's what you're getting with these gladiators. They all had their own types of armor and weapons that went with ever, whatever their specialty was. They would all swear this oath before entering the arena. I will endure to be burned, to be bound, to be beaten, and to be killed by the sword. a little bit about these gladiators. First, you have the horseman. He usually fought against another horseman. They would begin their matches on horseback, but they would obviously get knocked off eventually and end up in some kind of hand-to-hand combat. 
these were the only gladiators who wore regular tunics rather than any other type of body armor. They did wear bronze helmets, and those usually had two feathers, and they had padded shin protectors, and they carried around round shields and had long swords is what they used to fight with. There were the Hoplomachus or something of that nature. They were heavy weapons fighters. They were named after the Greek hoplite warriors. They fought with long spears as well as short swords or daggers. They would have a visored helmet with a crest and long greaves over both legs that would protect them since they only had very small shields. These shields were usually round. A mermillo was called a fish, and these were named for the Greek saltwater fish. They wore a large visored helmet with a high crest, and these helmets would be enhanced with decorations, things like the head of Hercules, military trophies, the gorgon, other types of things like that. They were protected by a large, slightly curved rectangular shield, and they would wear short shin guards. They usually had short stabbing swords, and they usually only carried short stabbing swords as their weapon. The provocateur or attacker was the most heavily armed gladiator. He was the only gladiator who wore a pectoral covering to protect his vulnerable upper chest. He also wore padded arm protectors and one greave on his left leg. He carried a large rectangular shield and stabbing sword. He would wear a large distinctive visored helmet that had no crest and it extended over his shoulders. Because he's wearing so much armor, he was slower and less agile than other gladiators. The Retarius, or Netman, was the quickest and most mobile of gladiators. He was the only type of gladiator who wore no helmet, and he had much more range of vision than his opponents. However, since he wore no practical defensive armor, he was also very vulnerable. The only body protection he had was a padded arm protector on his left arm, often topped with a high metal shoulder protector. The weapon that he had was a large net, which he used to entangle his opponent, and then he would carry a long trident and a small dagger that he could use to kill him. A secutor was a pursuer. The secutor was typically paired with a retarius. His egg-shaped helmet with round eye holes had no crest or release so that he wouldn't snag on the net of the retarius but it gave him very little range of vision. He wore a short shin protector on one leg and an arm protector, and he usually carried a large rectangular shield and stabbing sword. There was the Thraex, or Thracian, and the Thracian gladiator was loosely based on the Thracians, which were former enemies of Rome. His most distinctive feature was his weapon, which was a short sword known as a sicca, whose blade was either curved or kinked. His visored helmet had a wide brim, and it resembled that of a mermillo, except that it was topped with the head of a griffin. Because the Thracian carried a short rectangular shield, he wore an arm protector and long shin protectors on both legs. And then finally, there was the Bisterius, or animal fighter. This was a special type of gladiator trained to handle and fight all sorts of animals. These were the lowest-ranking gladiators, and they did not become as popular or individually well-known as other types of gladiators. They generally did not wear armor. Some of them did have it, but generally they did not have armor, and they were usually equipped with whips or spears, and they would wear cloth or leather garments and leggings. You imagine that probably was to give them a little bit better mobility. So those were the different types of gladiators that you would see in the Colosseum. Of course, there weren't just gladiator fights here. There were also chariot races. They weren't as often conducted in the Colosseum. Much of the time they were staged out at a place like Circus Maximus, but they did occasionally have them here. There were animal hunts that obviously were horribly one-sided. 
There were dangerous animals such as lions, tigers, bears, elephants, leopards, hippopotamuses, and bulls, so they had a chance to defend themselves. But defenseless animals were also used, and these included deer, ostriches, giraffes, and even whales. I don't know how they accomplished that, but you can imagine how defenseless a whale would be. There's no fight there at all. At least an ostrich could run, a giraffe could run, a deer could run, but a whale? There's no chance. Hundreds, sometimes even thousands of animals were butchered in a single day. Another main event at the Colosseum was the killing of Christians. The Romans were polytheistic and didn't like the religion of the monotheistic Christians. The other problem that you had here is most Christians would not uh, bow to the power of the emperor, so he didn't like that much. Christians would be arrested and brought to the arena where they would be placed out in the open and await attacks from wild animals that were unleashed on them. Sometimes they were shot with arrows. Sometimes they were even roasted over a fire. The Colosseum had a long run, being used for nearly 400 years. After it stopped being used, it fell into disrepair and parts of it were dismantled over time to be used as building materials. Stones from the Colosseum can be found at the cathedrals of St. Peter and St. John Lateran, the Palazzo Venezia, and the defense wall on the Tiber River. Today, there's only about a third of the original structure still intact, as I said. The main reason for even what is left to still stand is because the Catholic Church protected it. This was considered a sacred place since so many Christians were martyred here. The cruelty and death that happened here has left behind a myriad of emotional residue and probably attracted negative entities. And that makes for a good environment for hauntings. 400,000 people died here and probably a million animals. Those animals can be heard today through disembodied growling. There are other unexplained sounds like those of a crowd of people cheering and yelling. There are disembodied screams and the sounds of gladiators battling. Night guards claim to hear weeping in the vault area. And it is the vault area that is supposedly the most active of all the places in the Colosseum. There are plenty of full-bodied apparitions here, too. One of the most popular is a Roman soldier that still guards the Colosseum. He's seen in full armor and holding his shield. The weird thing about him is that he is colorless, save for his shirt, which is red. Spirits have also been seen walking up and down the stairs. And several visitors and staff claim to see people sitting in various seats around the arena. And several have been seen and heard in the tunnels, some of whom look like gladiators waiting to come out to fight and probably die. And there are those who claim to have been touched. Some of them say that the touch feels like a shove or a push. And there are cold spots, even in the middle of August. One area that's notorious for cold spots is where the Romans used to place their bets on the outcomes of the various competitions. Are these actual ghosts and spirits that are there? Or is a lot of this just residual that people are seeing? I haven't heard of anybody having an intelligent type conversation or interaction with any of these spirits, so I tend to lean towards these being residual. One of the things that definitely seems to be residual are combats going on between gladiators, as if they are reenacting their final moments in combat. And there are invisible chariots that seem to rattle and race across the sand that used to be here. All of those seem to be locked in time in some way. So much pain breeds emotional residue. Fear feeds the negative. Did the fear and pain and death leave behind hauntings? 
Is the Colosseum haunted? That is for you to decide. Obviously, Rome has several ghost tours there, and they even have vampire tours, which I was unaware of until I googled it. So I guess I do need to return to Rome, not necessarily to visit the Colosseum, but to go on a ghost tour, because I didn't do that when I was there. I want to invite you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com, and if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I'm going to be getting all of the events that I have set up for this year up on the website. So if you need to check anything out or figure out where you need to buy tickets, you'll be able to find all of the information there. I did get an email from Nicole. She's actually the one who had suggested the House of Seven Gables. So she was just letting me know how much she had enjoyed that. And she said, I actually asked the House of Seven Gables wedding coordinator while I was there for my wedding rehearsal She's ever experienced anything, and she admits that in the Hawthorne birthplace house, she's heard footsteps when she was the only one there. So there's something happening there, just most tour guides don't like to admit it. And then she says, anyway, I have a new experience to share that happens on an on and off basis. I work at a small town library outside of Boston that was built back in the early 19th century. A few parts of the original building remain standing, including an old clock in the attic that needs to be hand cranked in order to work. How cool is that? There's not a lot of deaths known to have occurred in the library, but there was a librarian who did drop dead from a heart attack in the building way before I came along or even before some of my former colleagues came along who'd been working there for over 30 years. I was not surprised to learn this a while back since I've always felt a presence, but it's never been menacing. As in terms of what happens, usually small things, but other bigger events that happened are a little mind-boggling. Some nights, books will fall off the shelf after closing, and I'll hear footsteps pacing back and forth in the other room where the portrait of the benefactor of the library hangs when I know everyone is left for the day. Another day, I came in for my shift, and I thought I heard my boss, let's call her Jane, talking in the back office. I couldn't make out the words. It was in a low female voice, almost mumbling. I walked into the room to say hello, and no one was there. At that moment, my boss came up the stairs, and I told her what happened. She told me that a former co-worker, I'll call him Jared, had a similar experience one day. He was in the back room and thought Jane was in the back office. He started talking to her and was getting yes or no answers. Well, that's weird. When he went into the back office himself, he found no one there. Jane had left for the day. Jane herself had another weird experience where she thought she saw me go into the back office only to disappear when she went after me to ask me a question. I was downstairs in the children's area at the time. Now I'll hear footsteps and books will fall on some nights, but I never feel scared. I just know the benefactor and the librarian are just looking after the place through the years, and I make sure when I pass his portrait to give a nod of thanks. And then she gave me a suggestion for another location. So thanks so much for writing, Nicole. I appreciate it. And then I got an email from Valentina who let me know that she and her family had visited a part of Italy where the Miramar Castle is located and she sent me some pictures which I shared up on Instagram so thank you very much Valentina for sharing those. Apparently there's a curse on this castle so I'm interested to find out more about that but it's absolutely gorgeous on the outside and inside. Then I have some reviews to share from Apple Podcasts. The first one comes to us from Canada. C White 0335 stars awesome podcast. I love that we get to hear the history behind a location, then hear of the hauntings, but with a healthy dose of skepticism. My wife and I have been binging to try and catch up. We've joined the Spooktacular crew and couldn't have been made to feel more welcome. It feels like family. Awesome job. Keep up the great work. 
I have a feeling this is Chris. Thank you so much for leaving that review, Chris. Greatly appreciate it. And I love having you and your wife as a part of the Spooktacular crew. We really are just one big happy family. Then we have KPG2314. Five stars, History and Ghosts, the perfect podcast. This is my main entertainment one on the go. Mixing history and paranormal is a perfect combo. I've been to many ghost tours throughout the USA, and it makes me feel like I'm traveling the world. Love the ambiance of the music to set the eerie mood to the random odd facts. Don't know why anyone would give less than a five-star review. Well, thank you, and I have to agree. And Natasha 08, informational with just enough supernatural five stars. I found this about a month ago and have been binging it ever since. I absolutely love it. I'm not someone who's ever been able to watch or listen to anything creepy when the sun goes down and I stay away from any horror film or show. Having worked almost a decade in healthcare, I've had all kinds of experiences from objects being thrown across a room, disembodied screams, to having a feeling of such unease and heaviness fall over me that it held me in place. I try to keep my entertainment lighthearted. That being said, I love anything doing with history and I'm always looking for new information to absorb. The nuggets of history in this podcast are enough to make me overlook the creepiness to keep coming back. Well, I'm glad that you keep coming back, and you know I want to hear more about those experiences you've had, Natasha. Thank you to everybody who has left reviews. A lot of you piled in there, and I greatly appreciate it. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. Mort and I would like to welcome into the cemetery Soap Bartholomew, who will be getting a spot on the niche wall. Nicole St. Pierre, who's going to be getting a marble headstone. Valentina Vinica, Rachel Hoare, and Lynn Spivey, you will all be getting a chest tomb. And I want to thank Taylor Grimm and Chris White for increasing your donations. Taylor's going to be moved to a marble headstone. And Chris... You'll be moving to a chest tomb. And now we have some more eulogies by Mort. Eulogies by Mort. Krista Klein had lived in Virginia Beach, but now she's within the Reaper's reach. She supported HGB for two years and more. History and ghosts she liked to explore. My next eulogy is for Cindy Pierce. That name makes me think she was fierce. She supported the show a long time. I'll have her buried before dinner time. Jennifer Larson supported HGB for one and a half years. For her, I'll cry some monster tears. She's going to go in this vault. Wanna see me do a somersault? Kevin Vale lives in the crossroads of America State. Now he'll see what after death awaits. He took great photos of his dog. I'd like to get a pet hedgehog. This poem I write for Barb Niles Barrett. She was a woman with a lot of merit. 
she had supported the show for over a year. With her I wish I had shared a beer. Annie Caredio lived in the city of Eugene. Of ghost stories she was quite keen. Libra and favored balanced skills. I hope she's not disturbed by spiritual wheels. Lori and Craig hosted the podcast Spectral Asylum. They examined all members of the Odd Phylum. They lived on the spooky Emerald Isle. I think I'll rest on their graves a while. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.